listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. And take your seats. Please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, if you're curious where that is, it's conveniently located right after 1 Peter. So good luck finding First Peter, and then just take a jog over to your right, and you'll be right there. If you use the Bible on your phone, you got it made in the shade. If you use your Bible on paper, you know, old school, then feel free to use that table of contents. Nobody will notice, but we get you there to Second Peter. And this morning, we are beginning part two of a series which we began last year. But we took a break from it, so it's a kind of a two-part series, and we finished part one right before Advent and New Year, and we took a break for those things, and now we're getting right back into it. The series is called Pilgrim's Progress, and it's our study, kind of our verse-by-verse study through the books of First and Second Peter. And here at Whitefields, you know, this is one of the ways that we love to study the Bible. We love to study consecutively through entire books of the Bible. And the reason we like to do that is because we feel like this way, we're, it's a way for us to allow God to speak to us on his terms and for us to get the entire message of a particular book of the Bible in its whole context. And so we love to study through entire books of the Bible. So this morning, I, here's what I'm going to do. Usually I read the text and then pray, but what I'm going to do today is it's a little bit longer passage. We're going to go through the text verse by verse. I'm going to read the passage to you as we go through it. So would you please bow your heads with me and we'll pray over our study of the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that it speaks to us, Lord, that it has a message for our lives today. And we ask that as we study it, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We might see glorious things in your word, Lord, that we might receive them, that we might respond appropriately. Lord, there might be areas of our lives that you want to address this morning through this text. Lord, maybe it's an area where you want to challenge us or an area where you want to encourage us. Lord, I thank you that you are to us our all in all. You are whatever we need in any given moment. And thank you, Lord, that you are uh, able to speak to each of us right where we're at through this same text this morning. So we pray that you would do that and give us a receptiveness to your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, how many of you have ever had the experience of having the check engine light come on in your car? It's not a lot of fun. It's always an inconvenience, right? It's never something that you plan on. It's never something that you look forward to, like, oh, I hope that this Tuesday the check engine light will come on in my car. And, and whenever it does, it, it immediately interrupts whatever you're doing and it, because it requires your immediate attention, Because if you ignore it, if you ignore that check engine light, if you uh, don't look into the problem and find out what it is, because it could be a number of things, from very serious to not all that serious, but if you don't find out what that problem is, the reason that light is on is because it's there to say, you better do something about this now, something's wrong, and if you don't do something about it, it will kill your car. It is going to destroy your car. So it's always an inconvenience when the check engine light comes on in your car. And yet, in a way, the check engine light is your best friend because it alerts you to a problem, the fact that there is a problem, while there's still time to act, while there's still time to deal with it and fix it and do something before it's gone too far. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there was a check engine light for your life? 
It's a check engine, kind of an early warning sign to say, you know, beep, 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 things are going in the wrong direction. Something's wrong and you need to look under the hood of your life and find out what's going on that's not working, that's not right. What if there was a check engine light for your soul? Well, what Peter tells us here in these first 15 verses of 2 Peter chapter 1 is that there is, in a way, a check engine light, an early warning system to alert you to problems in your life, problems spiritually, problems in your soul. And he's going to tell us what that is as we go through these verses and how we should respond appropriately. Here in the opening verses of his second letter, Peter addresses some questions that a lot of people ask, that a lot of people wonder about and struggle with. Questions such as, can I really know what God's calling is for my life? Can I really know whether or not I will go to heaven? Can I be assured of my salvation? Right? Can I know that I will, I will really go to heaven when I die? Can I know that God loves me for sure? The title of today's message is, Make Your Calling and Election Sure. That's a phrase that comes straight out of this passage from verse 10. Peter says, Endeavor, therefore, all the more to make your calling and election sure. So what we're going to be talking about is, first of all, what is the call of God on our lives? What is the essence of it? And secondly, what, are the, what is the evidence of it? How do we know if it's there? And also, kind of what are some warning signs as to if things are not good, if things are going the wrong direction? So in verses 1 through 4, we're looking at the essence of God's call on your life. And then in verses 5 through 15, we're going to talk about the evidence of God's call on your life. So let's begin by just jumping right into that first one. The essence of God's call on your life is this. It is the knowledge of God. The essence of God's call on your life is the knowledge of God. You'll see that phrase repeated three times in this section. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. This is the essence of the call of God on your life. Peter begins this letter by introducing himself. In verse 1, he begins with these words. Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, Simeon being the Hebrew enunciation or pronunciation of, of the name which we generally call Simon. So Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter introduces himself here as Simon Peter. And here's why. Simon was his given name. If you remember back to the Gospels, the four Gospels, when we first meet this man who is called Simon Peter, he was only known as Simon. Simon was his given name. That was the name that he was given by his parents at birth. Peter was his second name. It was a name that was given to him by Jesus himself personally. Now, there were two reasons why Jesus gave Simon the second name, Peter. First of all, there was a practical reason. And second of all, there was a symbolic reason. The symbolic reason is much more important, but, but there was a practical reason. The practical reason was that amongst Jesus' 12 disciples, there were two guys named Simon. Right? There was this other guy, he's called Simon the Zealot, and this guy, we, he's called Simon Peter. So they had to kind of differentiate between the two of them. If any of you grew up with a common name, you know exactly what this is like. My parents, they named me Nick because they thought that the name Nicholas was really unique. There's not a lot of people out there with that name. It's very uncommon. And then I started school, and in kindergarten, there were 12 boys in my class, and three of us were named Nick. There were also three boys named Ben in my class. So, you know, out of, you know, half the kids had two names, Nick and Ben. And one day in third grade, right, like I continued in school with all these kids, 
So one day in third grade, I remember my teacher got a note in our class that, hey, Nick, Nick's parents can't pick him up, so send Nick home with Ben. The problem is, they're not really sure which Nick it is, and I'm not kidding, this really happened. So I ended up getting sent home with this uh, kid named Ben, who I wasn't even friends with, and the teacher was like, Nick, you're going home with Ben. I was like, all right, so I go home with him, and you know, several hours later, my parents show up at this kid Ben's house. They've been looking for me for hours, worried what, where I was, where their third grader disappeared after school, and I actually feel worse, though, for the other Nick, right, who's just standing on the corner waiting for mom to show up for hours. Apparently, you know, they found him. I, I think he's okay. Um, but the, the point is this, that there was a practical reason. They got two Simons. You got to differentiate them. So Simon the Zealot and Simon Peter. But there was a much more important symbolic reason that Jesus gave for giving him this name. And that is that Peter means rock. Petrus in Greek. It means rock. And that's why Simon's, Simon Peter is sometimes known by a third name in the Bible, and that's the name Cephas, which is actually supposed to be pronounced Kephas, Kephas. And Kephas is the Aramaic word for rock. So it wasn't that Jesus particularly liked the name Peter. It's that he named him the rock. He looked at this man and said, your name is Simon, but from now on, I'm going to call you the rock. And that's really interesting because what a rock, right, speaks, a boulder. This isn't like a pebble or a stone. This is like the idea of what we would call a boulder. And it speaks of what? It speaks of stability. It, it speaks, you know, Jesus even told a parable once about two people, one who built their house on a rock and one who built their house on the sand. And the whole point of that was that the rock symbolized a solid foundation, immovable, solid, trustworthy. So Peter looked at, or Jesus looked at this man, Simon, and he said, I'm going to call you Peter, Petrus, Kephas, the rock, stable, solid, dependable, trustworthy. But here's why that's interesting. Because if you look at Peter's behavior throughout the Gospels, he's anything but solid, trustworthy, dependable. You know, all, all of those things. If you look at him, he, you see that he wasn't a stable person. He was kind of what we would say, he was kind of all over the place, right? Like he was a loose cannon. He was unpredictable. He was a liability in many ways. For example, Jesus, uh, Peter, Peter told Jesus on one instance, right, like at the Last Supper, Jesus said, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to be struck and you guys are going to fall away. You guys are going to scatter, which is actually a prophecy from the Old Testament, right? Well, Peter, right there in front of all the other guys, he says, Lord, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will, right? Like the other guys are like, bro, we can hear you. Like we're right here. Like, and you're saying, I don't know about all these other losers, but I'm with you, Jesus, right? I don't know about these guys. I've always been suspicious of them, but me, I'm with you. And then what will happen? Within six hours time, he has denied Jesus three times, right? As soon as the slightest amount of pressure came, Peter flipped. He, he flipped and turned his back on Jesus. It's not exactly a picture, is it, of unwavering strength. At the Last Supper, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, right, he wanted to show them that this is true greatness, becoming the servant, that, that the greatest among you will be the servant of all. So Jesus puts on this towel, and he takes the role of a servant and washes the feet of the disciples. And when he gets to Peter, and it's Peter's turn to have his feet washed by Jesus, Peter protests, and he's like, no way, no way am I letting you wash my feet. No way am I letting you serve me. And Jesus said, well, you still don't get it, man, after three years. And he said, look, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can have no part in me. 
And what's he saying? He's saying, in order for you to have a part with me, right? In order for me to be your Lord, your Savior, you have to humble yourself and let me serve you, right? If you keep yourself proud and say, I'm not letting you help me, I don't take any handouts, you've missed the entire point of my ministry. You've missed the point of the gospel. And so Peter responds to that. He says, well, in that case, Jesus, don't just wash my feet, wash my entire body. And Jesus is like, just slow down, bro. Like, I'm going to wash your feet and it's going to be fine. Just chill out. And it was these kind of pendulum swings, right? They were characteristic of Peter's life, going from one extreme to the other, very emotional, very passionate, but also very unpredictable, very unstable. And yet Jesus looked at Simon, even on the very first day he met him, and he told him, Simon, you are Simon, son of Jonah, but you will be called the rock, Kephas. You will be called Peter, Petrus, the rock. And he said, as you follow me, this is who you will become. This is who I am going to make you into. You are Simon, but I will make you the rock. And truly, that is who Peter became as he walked with Jesus throughout his life. He was transformed from, Peter, from Simon the fisherman to Peter the rock. And Jesus told Peter before, before his death and, and ascension, Jesus told Peter, he said, you are the rock that I told you you would be, and you are going to be a pillar of the early church. You are going to be a pillar of the work that I am going to do after I depart from this earth through my spirit. And that's exactly what happened. Peter became a rock, a pillar in the early church. And these two letters, first and second Peter, represent that in a way. They were written during the time called the Great Persecution, which is a persecution that took place under Caesar Nero starting in AD 64. And for several years, starting in AD 64, Nero led and instituted a great persecution against Christians in Rome. It was during this time that Paul the Apostle was arrested and beheaded and put to death and executed. It was during this time that Peter, then after probably in the wake of Paul's execution, Peter says, I need to step up as the rock, as the pillar in the early church, right? The one who walked with Jesus, the one who, who is a leader. And so what does he do? He sits down, he writes two letters. We have the second one in front of us right now to Christians all over the world, as opposed to some of Paul's letters, right, which are written to unique individual churches. These are called general epistles, which means he wrote them to Christians everywhere in the world. They were to be copied and passed out and read by everybody. And he's writing to them because they are shaken. They are worried because they're experiencing persecution. They're confused about what's going on. Why would God allow Paul to be put to death after all the good that he's done. You know, why, why is God allowing these things to happen to us? And so Peter's writing into that situation, speaking into it, and he's reminding them in these two letters, he's reminding these Christians of the great hope that we have in the gospel, that the hope of the gospel is not the hope of a comfortable life here and now. It is the hope of heaven. It's the hope of redemption. It's the hope of the kingdom which is to come. And he's reminding them that this world is not our home. We are sojourners and pilgrims here in this world, but we're not here to just bide our time and hold our breath until we can get out of here. We're sojourners and pilgrims in this world, but we're sojourners on a mission. We've been called on a mission from God to do his work in the world. Shortly after Peter wrote this letter, 2 Peter, he himself was arrested and executed by the Roman authorities. He was uh, ordered to be crucified like Jesus, kind of as a way to insult him. 
But Peter talked them into it at the last minute that they would allow him to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus had died. So even as Peter wrote this letter, he knew that he didn't have much time left in his life. He mentions that in verse 14 of this first chapter. He says, I know that the putting off of my body is at hand, right? He played the card, right? Like, I'm going to die, so listen to what I have to say, right? And so what we have here are the final words of a man who knew that he was about to die. The final words of a man who dedicated his life to following Jesus and leading others in Jesus' way. And because these are his final words, they have to them a sense of urgency, right? No nonsense, very direct, getting straight to the point. And, and by using his full name, right? We're still, on, we're still two, two words into this, into this book, okay, guys? But uh, using his full name, Simon Peter, what's he doing? He's reminding us of where he came from and where God has brought him where he came from, and who God has made him into. He started out as Simon the fisherman, but by the grace of God, by walking with Jesus, he has become Peter the rock. And friends, let me just stop right there and say this to you. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see you for who you are right now. When God looks at you, he sees you with an eye to, with a vision for who you can become and who you will become by his grace as you walk with him. The essence of God's call on your life. Remember, that's our heading right here for this first few verses. The essence of God's call. Let me say this. Here's part of the essence of God's call on your life. It is a call for you to come to him just as you are, but it is a call for you to become something more than you currently are. I'll say that again because I don't want you to miss it. The call of God, the essence of God's call on your life is for you to come to him just as you are, but it is for you to become something more than you currently are. That's the call of God on your life. And you could put it this way. God loves you so much that he accepts you just as you are right now. And yet he loves you too much to let you just remain the way you are right now. The call of God is not the call to just come to him and just remain as you are. It's not the call to a, a static existence. It's a call to a dynamic, progressing relationship with him in which he is forming you and shaping you into the person he desires for you to become. And why does he want you to become that person? Well, look at Peter. God wanted Peter to become this person, the rock, right? Because why? Well, on one hand, it was for Peter's sake. It was for Peter's sake that he wouldn't be this instable, unpredictable person. But on the other hand, it was also for the sake of other people who God wanted to reach and minister to and bless through Peter. And the same is true for you. God wants to work in your life both for your own sake and for the sake of those whom he wants to reach and bless through you. He goes on, Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I notice the order there, don't you? First a servant, then an apostle. Peter considered himself first and foremost a servant of God and then an apostle for God. The essence, again, that's our point, right? The essence of God's call on your life. The essence of God's call on your life is first a call to relationship with him. It's a call to belonging before it's a call to doing. It's a call to belonging before it's a call to doing. It's first a call to relationship with him and then a call to mission for him. Now, both aspects are important. They neither should be diminished, but the order is so important, 
We have to get that order correct or else it will lead to all kinds of issues in our lives. God doesn't save people. God doesn't call you to himself just so he can acquire a bunch of hands and workers to do stuff for him. That's not his primary purpose and goal. And yet, at the same time, we must say that serving God and doing things right for God, on mission with God, that is also an essential aspect of what it means to grow as a disciple. You know, one of the things that I've always loved about our church here is that we have a very high ratio of people in our church who are involved in serving. And I see that as such a good thing. And by the way, that's by design. That is by design. It's not because we just need stuff done. It's because we fundamentally believe that in order for you to grow as a Christian, grow as a disciple of Jesus, you need to serve. We need to serve in order to become like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus called himself the chief servant, right? That's how he described himself, as a servant. So in order for us to become like Jesus, that requires that we be serving like Jesus served, that we become servants like Jesus served. You know, one of the things, it was mentioned in announcements, but we always kind of have this mantra here that we would like everybody in our church to do two things. Join a group and join a team. Join a group and join a team. We just keep beating this drum, right? Join a group, meaning a community group where you gather, study the Bible, pray. You know, you're in relationship and community with other believers here in our community throughout the week. And join a team, which means join one of our service and ministry teams. We have teams that serve in the church. We have teams that serve outside of the church. But we want you to do that. And here's why. Because we fundamentally believe that in order for us to grow as disciples of Jesus, we must become like Jesus. And what was Jesus like? He was a servant. He was a servant. And so that's how we grow. So the order, though, is really important. We're called first to belong and then to serve, to go. We see this. He's, he says, I'm Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to who? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A faith of equal standing. See, Peter, he's kind of a big deal. Like, you guys know that. Like, this is St. Peter. This is the guy who, like, guards the door. He stands at the door to the pearly gates and decides who gets in, I guess, according to all the jokes. So he's a pretty big deal. And yet, what is Peter saying? He's saying that you and I can have equal standing, the, the same level of faith, the same faith that Peter had, we can have that too. And we can also have an equal status before God. Now, that's incredible, right? Because, again, we're talking about Peter, St. Peter, right? A big deal. Some of you might think, you know, well, you know what? If I saw the things that Peter saw with my own eyes, then I might be able to have the kind of faith that Peter had. But because I haven't seen what he saw, I don't know if I can have that same level of faith. And yet what Peter's saying here is this, that you and I can have and do have the same faith that he had. You know this, that you have the same Holy Spirit working in you that the early Christians, the apostles had working in and through them. And on the other hand, you and I have the same status before God that Peter had and has before God. Why? Well, because Peter tells us at the end of verse 1 that our standing before God, he says, is based on the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's standing before God and our standing before God is not based on anything we do, anything we accomplish, perform, etc. Nothing about us. It's about what Jesus has done for us. It's Jesus' righteousness 
imputed to us. There's a good theological word. We call it imputation, imputed to us. Now, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, it's kind of like this. Imagine, and, and for some of us, right, it's not going to be real hard to imagine, but imagine that your bank account is empty. You're like, yep, yeah, I'm with you, right? I'm right there, yep. And your credit cards are maxed out. You're like, yeah, check, right? Like, I'm there. Okay, bank account's empty. Credit cards are maxed out. Your stuff is getting repossessed. You're absolutely broke. But then, some wealthy person, some benefactor decides that they're just going to deposit all of their wealth into your bank account. They just get your routing number and they just send it over electronically. What would happen in that case? Well, first of all, not only would you be able to pay off all your debts, all your debts would be covered, but beyond that, you would have a surplus. You would have way more money than you could ever spend, than you could ever know what to do with. Well, that is the essence of what it means that God has imputed his righteousness into your account. This is the essence of the gospel. Think about righteousness is like currency. Righteousness is like currency. You and I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've got zero righteousness. In fact, we have a negative balance in the righteousness category. Why? Because we have a debt of sin before God. And it's a debt that we, have, we do not have the means to pay. And what happens is that one day for all of us, that debt will come due. And if and when it does, we're toast. But Jesus, and this is the good news of the gospel, Jesus came. He was completely and perfectly righteous. He was rich in righteousness. And because of his loving kindness, he deposited his righteousness, imputed it to you, deposited it in your account with your name on it. That's the idea of imputation. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you earn. It's a pure gift that someone does for you. Receive it and say, thank you. See, Peter's standing before God and our standing before God in Christ is not based on our actions, our own righteousness, our own greatness. It is based purely on what Jesus did for us on our behalf. And if you have the same faith that Peter had, which, it, which means trusting in Jesus and what he did for you, trusting him to be the great savior that you need, then you will have the same standing before God that Peter had as well. He says in verse two, may the grace of and peace, or may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, there's that word, knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, the two greatest gifts, the most precious gifts in the world, the grace of God and the peace of God. Notice how these things are mediated to us. How are they mediated? Here's how it says, through the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of God. How do you get the peace of God in your life? How do you get the grace of God in your life in increasing measure? Here's how, through the knowledge of God, through knowing him. It says in verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Again, how? Through the knowledge of him. God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him. Now, it's one thing, you know, that there's a difference between knowing in theory and knowing experientially, knowing personally, right? Like all of us know certain things about certain celebrities, but that doesn't mean we know those people. We might know their hobbies, we might know their birth dates, their kids' names, but that doesn't mean we know those people personally, experientially. It's the same thing with God. It's, it's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. 
experientially and personally. In chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is praying over his disciples after the Last Supper. And he says there at the beginning of his prayer, this important phrase, he says, the essence of eternal life, this is what eternal life is all about, knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is what it's all about from start to finish. This is what heaven, this is the essence of heaven, knowing and experiencing God. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul the Apostle talks about the same thing. He says, before I became a Christian, I was pursuing a lot of things in my life. I was looking for fulfillment in a lot of different areas, but I was completely empty and unfulfilled. But he says this, now that I have come to understand the gospel, I have one goal in my life, and that is to know him, to know Jesus, to know God the Father. In other words, the essence of the call of God in our lives is the call to know him. It's a call to relationship with him. You know, in my own life, uh, personally, I, I grew up in a Lutheran kind of setting. I went to a Lutheran um, school growing up, went to Lutheran church. I was baptized, and I was catechized, and I was confirmed in a Lutheran church. And for the most part, it was a really good experience. Um, but there did come a point where I came to realize that it wasn't enough to just know true things about God. It's not enough to just know true things about God. I actually needed to know God personally in a, in a relationship and experientially. And the way that I came to that realization was that one weekday afternoon, I, uh, I was sitting in my car after school one day. Uh, I was in high school and I had a friend in the car with me who I knew was a Christian. And we were talking. She initiated this conversation, you know. And she pointed out something to me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus' most famous sermon. And there in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this very surprising thing. He says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? He means this. There are some people who think that they're going to heaven. Why? Because they've, they've done certain things, right? In this case, Jesus said, oh, Lord, we've done so many things in your name. Oh, Lord, we, we worshiped you. We, we went to these things. We attended services. We, we even acted, you know, did acts of service for you. And Jesus says, and I will tell those people, depart from me, you evildoers, because I never knew you. And what Jesus is saying is that there are people who are in for a very tragic surprise on that last day. And that is this. They think that they're good with God. Why? Because they've done certain things. They've gone to church services. They know certain things, right? They know f true facts about God. And he says, and yet, they've never taken that step across the line into a relationship with me. And my friend asked me, she said, you know, is that you? Are you that person who thinks that you know God, but in reality, right, you just know things about God? You know, the essence of the call of God on your life is that it is a call to relationship with him. And what an amazing thing that is. That should blow our minds every time we think about it, right? That you could have a personal, dynamic connection with the creator of the universe, the one who made you, the one who holds all things together. And, and it begs the question, how do you do that? How do you enter into a relationship with God? How do you know God? How do you grow in the knowledge of God? 
But there are three ways that we can see really clearly outlined that are told to us in the Bible. Three ways to grow in the knowledge of God. Number one is by the word of God, right? God's revealed revelation of himself, his word. So the word of God. The second is by the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God who reveals the truth of God's word to us. And the third way is through interactions with Christians in community. So the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. Again, this is why we emphasize community groups. It's because we want you to grow and we absolutely believe that you cannot become the person who God desires for you to become on your own. You need the word of God, the spirit of God, but you need one other thing. You need the people of God. You need community. There at the end of verse three, Peter tells us something else about the essence of God's call on on our lives. He said, it's a call to God's glory and God's excellence. He says in verse four, by which he has granted to us great and precious promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of this world because of its sinful desire. Here's something more that we learn about the call of God, the essence of God's call on us. It is a call to partake in the divine nature. What does it mean to partake in God's nature? Well, to partake of something means to experience it, right? To take a bite of it, to have it become part of you, to become part of you. So consider what that means for the essence of God's nature. God is holy. Holiness is perfection. And in the Bible, holiness is correlated with happiness. I love that because I think so many times people get that off. They're like, holiness sounds like a bummer. No, in the Bible, holiness is correlated with happiness, So to partake in God's holiness, you know what that means? It means to experience satisfaction in your life. Do you want satisfaction? Of course you do. Here's how it's found. Partaking in God's holiness. Partaking in God's holiness leads to happiness, satisfaction. Furthermore, who is God as his character? God is a perfect community. He's a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. See, God calls us into a relationship with him, but it's not because he's lonely and needs friends. God calls us into a relationship with him, him, but it's not because he's desperate for company and willing to do whatever it takes. No, God has been eternally existing, eternally existing in a fulfilling, satisfying relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who he is. He is a relationship at his core. And each person of the Godhead of the Trinity, right? Loving the other, honoring the other, exalting the other. Round and round this goes, this relationship in which every person in the Godhead is endeavoring to exalt and glorify and serve and bless the other. It's this beautiful life-giving cycle of joy. And essentially, this is what it means to partake in that. It is God inviting you to join in that. To join, to become part of that relationship, to partake in it. See, what Peter wants you to see here is this. God's call on your life, the essence of God's call on your life, is not only a call to be forgiven of your sins. It's not only a call to not go to hell. That's part of it. That's an essential part of it, but it's not the whole of it. It's just the start. That's just the beginning. It is so much more beyond that. What we see in these first few verses is that the call of God in your life, the essence of it is this. It's a call to a relationship with God which will transform you. A relationship with God which will transform you. It's a call to experience the glory and excellence of God and partake in the goodness and perfection and joy and beauty and be transformed through it. Isn't that beautiful? That is the call of God. Now, 
How do you know if you have that call on your life? What is the evidence of God's call on your life? Well, here's what Peter tells us next. And this is really the, the heart of what he says here. And it's this, the qualities of Christ. The qualities of Christ in your life are the evidence of your calling. Let's, let's explain. Verse five, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith or to supplement your faith with, then he gives a list of seven things that he says that we should add to our faith. Here's what they are. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He says, you have faith. Awesome. Now add to your faith these things. There are things, in other words, that don't just happen on their own. He says, put every effort into it. If you want to see these things in your life, it will take some effort on your part. Do you want to grow in knowledge? It's going to take some effort. Do you want to grow in faith? It will take effort on your part. Do you want to grow in godliness, self-control, love? These things don't just happen by putting a Bible under your pillow and getting it through osmosis. These things require effort on your part. And these things here, what are they? Look through that list. These are characteristics that we see lived out and modeled by Jesus Part of partaking in the divine nature, you know what it means? It means becoming like God, becoming like Jesus. And these are the qualities of Jesus that we get to partake in, that we get to add to our faith. And Peter says this is going to require some effort. But here's what, in verse 8, he tells us why it's worth the effort. Why it's worth the effort. Here's what he says. If these qualities are yours and increasing... They will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is possible, Peter is saying, it is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. Is that what you want? Do you want to have a saved soul and a wasted life? Because it's absolutely possible. It's possible to have a million dollars in the bank and live an impoverished life. It's possible for a Christian to be saved but to live a life that is ineffective and unfruitful. What, what does that look like? What does an ineffective, unfruitful Christian life look like? Well, if you want a picture of it, a perfect picture is the Dead Sea. I got to go to the Dead Sea last year. I hope to go again next year. In the country of Israel, there are two large bodies of water. In the north, the Sea of Galilee, and in the south, the Dead Sea. And what's interesting is that both of them are fed by the same source of water, which is the River Jordan, which is a, a life-giving, right? Life, it's flowing with life, the River Jordan is. Uh, the Sea of Galilee in the north, also fed by the Jordan River, is this lush oasis full of fish, teeming with different species of birds. The, the Dead Sea, on the other hand, is exactly what it sounds like. It's dead. It is one of the most naturally toxic bodies of water on earth. Ingesting even just a little bit of the water is deadly. Like when you go into it, you have to be careful. Nothing can live in it. I, I got to float in it last year. And what's interesting is they only let you float in it for like 20 minutes because you have to get out because literally that water is so salty, so toxic that it literally sucks the life out of you, right? And isn't that a picture of an ineffective and unfruitful Christian life, right? Life sucking rather than life giving, right? The reason the Sea of Galilee is dead is because it takes in, but it never gives out. It has no outlet. There's nowhere for it to go. It consumes, but it never shares. It never gives out. And as a result, it's completely unfruitful. The ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness of a, of a Christian life that is a saved soul, but a wasted life, right? It's a lot like the Dead Sea. 
right? An ineffective, unfruitful Christian life is one that is myopic, right? Your, your, your vision is closed, inwardly focused, self-centered, constantly unfulfilled, always looking for that next thing, that next person who will come and fill that void in your soul. An ineffective and unfruitful Christian life is one that never makes progress. There's no victory. It's just constant backsliding and then coming back around. It's not making a difference. It's not blessing others. It's a saved soul, but a wasted life. And that is a tragic, miserable, depressing way to live. I don't think any of us wants to say, I lived a life that was completely insignificant. If though, on the other hand, you want to live a significant life, a fruitful life, an effective life, here's how to do it, Peter says. Put every effort into adding these things to your faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For whoever lacks in these qualities, verse 9, is nearsighted, so nearsighted that they're blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. So this kind of lazy, half-hearted faith, what is it the result of? It's the result of losing sight of the gospel. Losing sight of the gospel. This is why we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. The message of who Jesus is. What Jesus did to save us. Guys, you know that the gospel... It's not just the ABCs of Christianity. Some people think that, right? The gospel's like the ABCs. It's the child stuff. It's the beginning elements. But then you move on. You graduate to the, to the deeper stuff. No, guys. There is no deeper stuff than the fact that the God of the universe condescended to us, that he came down and became one of us, sacrificed his life. There's no deeper truth than the fact that we are great sinners and he is a great savior. Right? That he's a faithful Savior, that he is a gracious Savior. There's no deeper truth than that. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life. Guys, the gospel is the A to Z. It is the whole of the Christian life. And that's why here at Whitefields, you know, we call ourselves a gospel-centered church. And what we mean by that is that in every sermon, in every children's ministry class, in everything we do, our goal is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Because we understand that is not only the way that we get saved, it's the way that we grow. It's the motivation by which we grow as believers in the Lord. And, and Peter says this, if you have lost your fervency, your passion for God, if you've taken your foot off the gas, it's a sign that you've taken your eyes off the gospel. You've taken your eyes off the gospel and you need to get your eyes back on the facts of the gospel, how utterly lost you were apart from Jesus. How, what an incredible price he paid for you. What incredible love he has shown. Maybe you've forgotten how completely he has cleansed you by his sacrifice on the cross. This is the solution. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Guys, so many things in this world will disappoint you. So many things will get you off track and pursuing the wrong things. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is why we take communion every week here at Whitefields. We want to be continually reminding ourselves, this is it. This is it. This is why we gather. This is our hope. This is the thing that motivates us on. Jesus Christ and him crucified, what he did for us. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling or to make your calling and election sure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. One of the big questions that people ask, how can I know if I'm really saved? How can I have assurance that I will go to heaven when I die? How can I know whether I've really been called by God and elected by God? How can I know if I'm really his? How can I have assurance 
of these things? And Peter answers that question by saying this, the evidence of whether or not you are really in the faith will be the fruit of your life. That's the evidence. An apple tree produces apples, and the life of a person who walks with God will bear the fruit of walking with God. So Peter says, take a look at your life. In addition to trusting in Jesus and trusting in the gospel, are these qualities present in an ever-increasing way in your life? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. If not, that's the check engine light on your car for your life. You should be concerned. If the fruit of a relationship with God, the fruits of the Spirit, the things that he mentions here, if they're not evident in your life, that's a warning that something's not right. But the good news is you can do something about it. Now, let me be clear. These things on their own, they're not gonna help you at all in your status with God, right? There could easily be, and I could probably point you to some people who are not Christians who have these qualities in their lives. But here's the thing that Peter says. You must add these things to your faith. In other words, faith in Jesus and what he did is primary. Without that, these things aren't gonna help you at all with God. But the presence of these qualities in your life is an indicator that you're on the right track. Likewise, the absence of these qualities in your life is a warning light that something is wrong and it needs your attention. Verse 11 for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Paul the Apostle says that it's possible to be saved by the skin of your teeth, right? Just barely getting in to heaven, right? Just sliding in like under the garage door as it closes. But then he says here, Peter says, but also there will be provided for some, there can be provided a rich entrance into heaven, See, Jesus told us there are, there are people who unfortunately believe they're going to heaven when in fact they are not, as I mentioned from Matthew chapter 7. They have a false sense of confidence for one reason or another. And Peter's saying this, do you want to look under the hood? Do you want assurance of your salvation? Then look at the fruit of your life. Is your life characterized by these virtues? If it is, that's a good sign. If it's not, that, that's a warning sign. You know, even if you prayed a prayer at one point in your life to receive Jesus, even if you were baptized at one point in your life, even if you've been coming to church every week for your entire life, if you are not pursuing God, if there's some area of your life that is incongruent with the will of God, that should be a warning to you. You know what? Let's put it this way. Disobedience and assurance do not sleep in the same bed disobedience and assurance do not sleep in the same bed. Nowhere in the Bible does God give assurance to people who are not walking in active obedience and pursuing God. To those who are, even if they falter, even if they fail, God gives every assurance that you are his and he will hang on to you. But for those who are, who are saying, you know what, I'm, I know what God wants, but I'm gonna do this instead, there is absolutely no assurance given. Rather, a big flashing warning light that says, watch out. You know, Christ-like qualities can't save you, but they're an indicator of what's going on in your heart. And so Peter's point here is this. Examine yourself and put every effort into growing in these areas of your life so you can be more fruitful, more effective, used by God for his purposes and becoming the person he wants you to be. In verse 12, Peter says, I don't mind reminding you because I am going to die soon and I want you to remember my words. So I'm gonna say them over and I'm gonna say them loudly. That's what he says through the end of this chapter. Let me conclude here. How can you know if God really loves you? 
How can you know what God's will for your life is? How can you know if you will really go to heaven when you die? Here's what we've learned in this passage. The call of God is a call to relationship with him. It's a call to be transformed by him. He wants to take you from where you are and lead you to a place of greater joy and greater significance and effectiveness in your life, both for your sake and for the sake of others. That's God's will and plan for your life. That's God's call on your life. And the way to know how much God loves you is simply to look to the cross, to remember the gospel, that God has provided his love for you by trading places with you. He has proved his love by trading places with you, paying the price for your sins and imputing his righteousness to your account. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look no further than the cross of Calvary. Assurance of your salvation comes by trusting in the word of God and by looking at the fruit of your life. On the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. That was a shout of victory, right? It was the final brush stroke on the masterpiece painting. It was him saying, done, completed, I did it. And Jesus accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. The question for us, though, is this. Have you really embraced it? Have you really trusted in Jesus and what he did for you? You know, in that car ride that I was on with that, with that friend of mine where she challenged me about knowing God, there was one other thing she said to me that has always stuck with me. She asked me this, you say you're a Christian, but what does that mean? What is a Christian? Isn't a Christian, she asked me, isn't a Christian somebody who follows Jesus? And she said, well, look at your life and ask yourself, are you following Jesus? Because if you're not sure, then you need to ask yourself, why are you so convinced that you're a Christian? And that question made me upset at first, but it ended up being one of the kindest, most helpful questions that anyone ever asked me. So along with Peter, and along with that friend of mine back in my car in high school, I wanna ask you this. Do you see those things in your life? What does your life say about what you really believe, what you're really pursuing and seeking after? And you, as you look at that, you will either be encouraged or alarmed but either way, the answer is to fix your eyes on Jesus and to set aside everything that would weigh you down and entangle you so you can pursue him wholeheartedly, giving all of your life to him who gave his life for you. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as we come to it, we just come with humble hearts wanting to receive and we receive this message. Lord, I pray you'd help us to do some honest self-examination, to ask those questions which, which even if they're uncomfortable, Lord, you already know the answer. And Lord, may we be challenged, may we be spurred on. Lord, may some of us be encouraged today, Lord, that we would put every effort into adding these things to our faith that we might not be ineffective or unfruitful, but our calling and election would be sure. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.